Welcomen, bienvenue, welcome to another glorious, horrible, deep dive and glib toss-off episode of the latest and greatest and you'll hate us and why do we even bother when it'll never be as good as I hope, no matter how much I tried to make it transcendent and unlike anything you've ever seen before or will again. For whatever else it might not be, ladies and gentlemen, madame and monsieur, boys and gulls, from the king's box to the groundlings on the floor, and even those who do not listen anymore, put your hands together for... Full Casting Crew. I'm Jason. I'm Chris. And we are here today on the Full Casting Crew podcast to discuss Bob Fosse's 1989? Uh, 85? 79? 79? Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was a nine. That's the concept. Nine and a half? Fellini's nine and a half? I think you're promoting it. It's only eight and a half. Eight and a half, okay. But with time. It is Inflation. Fellini-esque. We're doing all that jazz. A movie I was thrilled to rewatch last night and be bathed in all anew. Is it the greatest showbiz movie ever made? Easily. I mean, I'm serious. I am too. I mean, let's clarify the terms. I was thinking it's not so much a making of a movie or a musical type movie of the sorts that we've seen, but there are certain movies that are about show people. They are about the life of show business in a way that really only one other movie comes to mind. I watched this last night and just thought, wow, this gets at so many truisms on all sides, all the different tiers of show business. That's what's unique about it. There are movies that maybe tell you about the life of an actor or a performer mm-hmm. or a director. But in this movie, there are nuggets and pearls of real insight and wisdom about being a bean-counting producer, being a cutthroat director, being a wannabe performer, a dancer, being in a relationship with people in the arts. So many, many things to unpack. I watched it last night and just came away thinking, like, this is the greatest movie about show business ever made. Yeah, and the only other one that really comes to mind is Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. Oh, I haven't seen before. that. Uh, but I do know that, I mean, I like Mike Lee in general. I do think that one also includes some of this other stuff because it's about a troupe and about the lives behind the scenes and what goes on to putting something on stage. And it's very much, you know, it's about Gilbert and Sullivan. And But man, this movie, he is a director. It's ridiculous. He's an amazing it's director. Ridiculous. And it's, like, it's obviously a, a film about show business and about show people, but it's also an incredibly personal and intensely subjective, semi-autobiographical, and certainly not hagiographic. No. In the same way that we talked about uh, with Reversal of Fortune last week. It's so glorious because there's enough glamour there to be interesting, and yet he does not pull any punches when examining himself or the business or show people in general. And when you talk about the insights that he gets to, I think there is something very profound about the link between death and show business and the idea of performance Mm -hmm. and wanting to entertain as a way to stave off the dark and Mm -hmm. at the same time also courting it all the time. It's just so stunning. You know, I think I've seen it only like three times, including Mm -hmm. this week, and each time it gets better. I'm going to say it's the 2001 of showbiz movies in that for a lifetime, you could rewatch this film Mm -hmm. and not yet unpack all of the various things that are going on within it. It's both a demonstration of Bob Fosse's comically oversized, ridiculously confident skills as a film director and a total explosion and deflation of him as a myth. It doesn't take himself so seriously, even as it's a display of how incredibly talented he was, Mm -hmm. how tyrannical, how obsessed, how committed, how addicted. Who else has put themselves on the screen in such a self-flagellating way? And the truth and the honesty of it comes through. And yet it also is brilliantly, hilariously funny and so mordant and dark. I I couldn't even believe all over again the final shot. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, we'll get there. I don't want to talk about it now, but man, it just blew me away all yeah. over again last night. And I'm going to go down the Fosse wormhole a little bit more in coming days because it makes me want to revisit the other movies. I mentioned to you Star 80, yes. which growing up as a teenager was always like a sick, weird movie that we love to watch. Yeah. But as I was watching a little stuff about him as a film director, how different the movies are from each other is ridiculous. And mm -hmm. like Kubrick, I mean, it's, I hate to keep using that comparison, but supposedly Kubrick is quoted saying this was his favorite film. Yeah. That might have been an offhand or, comment. Or if the best film he's ever seen. The best film he's ever seen. Which I think is even higher praise. <laughs> but the way his movies that he made are so different from each other is fascinating. Yeah. And the, yet there is a real voice that like, cause I just, totally. I watched star 80 for the first time in preparation for this, just yeah. to sort of see the the contrast. Yeah. And you're right. They are very different. Yeah. And yet you can see a, um, a line between mm -hmm. here and there. It's interesting that it was what, 10 years before his death or so mm -hmm. that he made this one, which is so incredibly mm -hmm. personal and star 80, which is a, a wonderful film. But I think he probably sees more of himself in that uh, in the Snyder character. Totally. Uh, and yet he <laughs> puts it at a distance, you know yes, what I mean? Um, yes. Which maybe shows some maturity that he was, he was coming to from the experience of having examined himself in all that jazz. When you look at the life of Fosse, which I think goes back to the 50s as a dancer and a choreographer and sort of working in TV and films, by the time he's making these movies, in the 70s, you're talking about someone who does have, kind of like us, 25, 30 years in the business, you're gonna yeah. develop that mordant eye for you know the ups and downs, the pitfalls, the character types. And yeah. I think he's such a mature person in a way, and an immature person at the same time, of right. course. A lot of what I think you're seeing in all that jazz just feels like the benefit of stuff that he's lived through. And he's developed an eye that examines those things from having grown up in the theater. Not like the legitimate theater, but yeah. in the burlesque houses. The burlesque and houses, the you know, which I, is I not so different. It's not so different from Broadway. I mean, he's, that's what he's saying. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I meant that, you know, it wasn't highfalutin stuff that he was yeah. doing. You know, started as a tap dancer uh, and uh, yeah. doing uh, burlesque gigs. Yeah. I mean, he certainly was a young tap dancer. And yeah. I was watching a documentary about him. And I think even at the age of like 14, yeah. he was a professional dancer with a friend of his. That's right. And he was talking about coming from gigs and doing his homework in the car yeah. as his mom was driving him and his friend home. Let's just play a little of the iconic opening scene of the film, which is a revelation unto itself. And literally you could watch the five and a half minute opening scene, which the Criterion Collection has deigned to put online although they do not stream the film on the Criterion channel, which I thought was kind of interesting and annoying as I tried yeah. to watch the movie last night. You can buy the Blu-ray DVD from Criterion, but you cannot stream it on their own channel, nor is it available on any of the other streamers, yeah. which is a real crime. I mean, I'm not sure if maybe they pulled that out in order to capitalize on the Fosse Verdon FX series. I can't imagine you'd sell a tremendous amount of to, like that. <laughs> all that jazz DVDs on the basis of that? Or, I yeah, don't know. that's Pennywise pound foolish, I would think, because, you know, it, you know, while that's a big deal now for the eight weeks that that's running, there'll be something else that comes along next week. And yeah. it's not worth the hassle to take it off, put it back, uh, because probably they'll get more from people who want to see it in the moment and bring them in via the uh, criterion. I haven't seen that, but apparently it ends with all that jazz. That's like the ending huh. thing of the thing. So I was wondering if that was part of that. But the first hour or so of all that jazz, it is a behind the scenes making of a Broadway musical and also in the edit room as he tries to edit a feature film. And through that, we get the Fosse time jumps to his childhood, to his flirtation with the angel of death. Death, 
played by what's her name? Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica Lang, one of the biggest movie stars of the yeah, 80s. Her, that one. Her. Yeah. Which looks like it's on the set of Cabaret, like yeah. in a sense, right? I mean, he's got such a, watching little clips of, of a lot of his shows, he does have such a recognizable oh aesthetic God, that is crazy. so, like there are some artists like this, like Chuck Jones or Jack Kirby, where mm-hmm. people who are in a kind of medium that are sort of so, come at just the right time where they're yeah. synthesizing so many things and they have a recognizable mm-hmm. thing that literally everybody else is sort of responding to. Yeah, And, you know, again, not to make too much, but I think with Bob Fosse, everything that we think of or certainly of our generation and certainly any younger mm-hmm. is seen through the filter of his idea of putting on a show and yeah. the kind of, not to use Brechtian again, but like the, you can see the seams of where the sets are and the mm-hmm. fact that so much takes place in the rehearsal room. And I just love how in the dream sequences, it's not meant mm-hmm. to be otherworldly. And I, yeah, I just it, love that aesthetic. Well, the meta commentary is kind of like, we're filming dream sequences and we're going to show you how we filmed dream sequences. Mm-hmm. So it's that stepped removed, like, and the beginning sequence, which is in a mass audition for the Broadway show, is so iconic and probably has been repeated in so many ways in so many other mediums, the winnowing down. I immediately thought of how it was kind of ripped off in Showgirls, which we watched a little of uh-huh, uh-huh. clips a couple of weeks ago, the going down the line and making comments to the dancers part. That's totally in all that jazz. Though um, inversed here, as opposed yes. to Mo, what is it, Mo? No, Mo Green is in The Godfather. That's right. Uh, what's the name of whoever, the guy who's the producer yeah, the in Showgirls who says yeah. it makes a point of being a dick. Yeah. And even though Joe Gideon in all that jazz is a dick, one of the things you start out with him actually being quite sort of nice and charitable to sure. the people as he's cutting them. After he wakes up with Dexedrine and Vizine, well, sure. but yeah. But anyway, here's a little of this opening scene. He's brilliantly cut to this song. <laughs> this scene is not only is it just masterful filmmaking, we're cutting back and forth between everyone who's watching the audition process. And as such, we're introduced to really all of the main characters in this big chunk of the film, his ex-wife, his daughter, the various producers. You know, it's like the one cheesy young producer who's introduced with the Banaka mouth freshener blast. To just know you don't need any dialogue to do any of this. Credit to him and other filmmakers knowing that this is such a visual medium that you don't have to have dialogue that is saying these things. You can show it just by the action of them in the room Mm -hmm. watching it, which is part of their job, which is what the whole movie is about. It's so economical. Shout out to Alan Heim 
who is the editor of this movie, mm-hmm. his work, and also I think what we think of as the visual iconography of Fosse as a filmmaker, I think stems really primarily from this film and from Cabaret. Those are the two visually most important Fosse movies, I would say. And since this one is set in his world of filmmaking and directing and choreography for the theater, you get an expression of what it's like to be in these rooms. The way we were just watching that scene and the way it cuts from a wide shot from the audience to an overhead and the way that the crowd, the herd is thinned as people who aren't any good. You're just sort of chuckling at a guy who's really out of place. And that's how we kind of learn a little bit about the relationship between his daughter and his ex-wife whom he's choreographing this show for Mm -hmm. in an act of repentance, I guess. Like, since I was such a terrible husband and father, I'm going to do this entire show as a centerpiece for you. Alan Heim, the editor, also plays the editor in the film. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, Wait, so he's the guy who's editing the film in the film. The film within the film is being edited by the actual (laughs) editor of this film. And, you know, there was an article in the Times 10 years ago. I guess it was the... 30th anniversary instead of the 40th. But he talks about coming up with the non-linear editing style that sort of flattens time. And he says, when an early linear cut of Lenny played a tad sluggishly, Fosse encouraged Mr. Heim to dice the film into a collage to compress the story and permit surprising juxtapositions. By fragmenting it, the picture became much better, much more interesting, Mr. Heim said. Fosse was so pleased with the result that he and his screenwriter partner, Robert Allen Arthur, built time shifts into the early screenplay for all that jazz. Mr. Heim said the film's high-speed riffing through Gideon's recent past, childhood, and deathbed fantasies was so flexible and so distinctively Fosse's that the director's regular composer, Ralph Burns, hung a label on it. Ralph said there are flashbacks and flash-forwards, and then there is Fosse time. (laughs) When we're working on Bob's films, we were working in Fosse time. The phrase has to do with not really being locked into any particular time frame, but taking full advantage of what you can do with film, which is mess around with time. And, like life, a moment in the present is infused and suffused and brought to bear because of what came before it. Yeah. And because of what you're trying to accomplish in the future. That's what his Fosse time allows us to experience in real time. I think one of the most striking examples of that is the scene where they're doing the table read Mm -hmm. and he's sitting right across from his ex-wife. And as the heightened laughter is shown, the audio drops out, and all we hear are ASMR-like sounds of Fosse's internal process, which is terrified and unconcerned by the laughs and focused only on what isn't working. And I read an article that said that sequence for him was to show he's not in it for all that stuff. He's not in it for the laughs. He's not in it for his ego. Of course he is. But it's the drive that ends with him snapping the pencil behind his back as everyone's laughing, and then he has his heart attack. And he even says uh, at at one point in one of the, I don't know if you call them flash forwards or flashbacks, when he's talking with Angelique, the uh, angel of death, Mm -hmm. and he is saying nothing was ever good enough. Nothing is ever funny enough. Nothing is ever razzle-dazzle. You know, whatever the words he uses— It's so funny because that in some ways can be an ennobling thing Mm -hmm. that you're not in it for just to throw chum to the crowds. You Mm -hmm. want to do something more. And yet at the same time, it's also so ego driven to think like, 
like, I don't care about anybody else's reaction. I'm just nervous because it's about me. Yeah. It's a wonderful insight that he has. In that table read scene, there's something going on between him and his ex-wife and the looks that they're giving each other, which aren't really about the table read. It's about the history that they have and this sense that she has in many of those scenes about the making of that musical. There's the incredibly influential, crazy airliner stewardess sex plane. Erotica. Er Erotica scene. <laughs> you know, after she watches that, she's so pissed off at him because the staging of that is in its own way a slap in her face about his own erotic pursuits and obsessions and putting this on stage so boldly. Especially when it's supposed nakedly, to be a vehicle, as for, a vehicle her. for her. And then this gets put onto it. It's great how that number, you see it get developed because you have the music writer played by Anthony Holland yes. who comes in a couple times. He writes, you know, perfectly nice kind of song to be staged. And when it gets filtered through Joe Gideon slash yeah. Bob Fosse's vision, it becomes something very different. Mm -hmm. Depending on how you look at it, that's either a great artist or somebody who is taking things away from everybody else. The ex-wife played by Leland Palmer. She's fantastic. Did I call her Leland Palmer? Is that yeah. the it is Leland, Leland right? Palmer. Which is, which is also the name of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. I was like, I can't possibly. Yeah. But, uh, and she's wonderful. But her recognition that she's angry because it's taken away from her and it's different mm -hmm. than what she wanted to be. And it's more about him. And yet there is still enough of her appreciation as a fellow artist yeah. to realize this is, as she puts it, the best work you've ever done. Let's play a little of the erotica scene. We'll just play a little of this and we'll talk about it afterwards. Meet our friendly you your opinion of what this scene is about because it exists on so many planes. To me, the idiocy of the setup, yet the absolute genius of the choreography. Why the juxtaposition? If you listen to the lyrics, it's not erotic. You know, we don't really know what the musical is supposed to be or whatever mm -hmm. it is, but when Anthony Holland introduces the yes. song the first time, it sounds like a generic yeah. musical theater song about an airline. Give me a bouncy seat. Yeah, but a like, airline. You know, exactly. Like, right. this is a great time for production number as our hero goes yes. from one coast to the other yeah. coast. But it gets filtered through him, and, you know, we played just the first part, and then it takes a bigger change, and the lights come down, and everybody takes off It's a family clothes. podcast. Chris, I didn't want to get into the exposed nipples on display later on in the dance routine. Kids are going to have to learn about that sometime. <laughs> this is probably the best and most realistic way to learn about. So, uh, do the you think body. it's about him taking insipid source material and making something truly great out of it? I wouldn't even say that it's meant to be insipid, only because it's meant to be more like this is just what normal musicals are, sort of like the insipid. That's what I, that's my, that was my point. As listen, as Gideon would ask, <laughs> what's the matter? 
Don't you like musical comedy? It's taking something that the standard and putting his own vision on top of it and then changing it to make it himself. Like he is such an overbearing personality mm -hmm. that whatever he gets involved with becomes a Bob Fosse thing as opposed to what anybody else wanted. And I suppose if you took the ego tack, he could also be saying his greatness doesn't often find a place to perch upon that's worthy. The choreography in that is so mind-blowingly revolutionary and incredible. But in so many places, he both is doing the thing and and putting his own uh, other influences on top of it. In addition to the dance poses, which you could snap a hand and do jazz hands or do these things or broken body types, and you could trace that through everything from Michael Jackson videos to, like I said, anything contemporary. He also has this erotic imagery, the women with the way their leotards are, uh, the lead woman in this thing with kind of the, the tights, but with the, like the bikini over the tights, this look that he developed that mm -hmm. probably has to do with his own highly developed peccadillos that he kind of is exploring in this movie as well. And that's not even talking filmically, like you were talking before about what he came up with in terms of the Fosse time and kind of how we jump around in the narrative. But I thought it was so fascinating how in this scene, he freaks out everyone, including the investors and the woman for whom he is ostensibly putting on the show, who's so pissed off at the end of it yeah. that she just like slaps him in the face. There's so many meta elements to the movie. He based it on his own life. And, you mm -hmm. know, the story is that this is roughly based about he had had a heart attack when both doing a revival of Chicago in 1975 while he was actually cutting the movie Lenny. Burden. For Gwen Verdon, exactly, yeah. uh, while cutting Lenny and yeah. then, you know, overworked himself and had a heart attack in this. Though, of course, in the movie, he ends up taking the character forward, spoiler for 1979's All That Jazz, to death. Yes. And in real life, lived on for another eight more years. Um, he was only 60. Yeah. But he did smoke five to six packs of cigarettes a day, take amphetamines, the smoking in the movie, Woo. Yeah. I wanted Roy to just stop smoking the omnipresent cigarettes. Oh, and it gets like, it's such a, <laughs> it's so funny because you see in a film, somebody who's a theater director or, you know, who came mm -hmm. from the theater coming into it and like the repetition of his morning routine. Yes. To describe it, it sounds pretty trite. Uh, and yet to watch it play out, it is so effective because of the Fosse time. One, the fact that you see the repetition, mm -hmm. that says something. Yes. The fact that you get a chance to see it change slightly over time. Yes. Uh, but then, of course, the things that stay the same that yeah. says just as much. It works so well. And it's like, why didn't I think of that kind of thing? Well, I have a little compilation for you of all the It's Showtime folks scenes from the <laughs> film cut together here. It's Showtime, folks. It's Showtime, folks. Showtime, folks. It's Showtime, folks. Showtime. Lenny was the film that came out just before this, which black and white, more documentary in style, although it did employ some of that kind of yeah. bossy time cutting. And then before Lenny was Cabaret. And prior to Cabaret had been Sweet Charity. Sweet Charity, yes. Which, was, which uh, looks bonkers. And was a flop. <laughs> uh, and he was saying that he uh, couldn't get another film job for a while. Even when, when it did come to doing Cabaret, a bunch of people were turning it down. Yeah. Which is why it finally ended up in his lap. And he was like, yes. Yeah, just the difference filmically from movie to movie to movie. There are some small clips on YouTube of him directing both Cabaret and all that jazz. And, you know, much is made. He was a tyrant. He was a horrible womanizer. He 
you know, depending on who you listen to, abused actresses and dancers sort of verbally and psychologically in order to get what he wanted. Yeah, which he doesn't shy away from in here. But then, you know, Anne Ryan King and other people have maybe through the passing of time given more recent, more warm-hearted reminiscences of how he was to work with. And certainly Scheider says that he was the greatest director that he ever worked with because he had such a fundamental understanding of what it was to be a performer Mm -hmm. that he could empathize with you, yes, but he could push you to do something like he shows in the film with the woman who he initially cast because he wants to sleep with her. They do sleep together. His current girlfriend finds them in bed together, leaves, but then he continues to move forward with this woman in the production of the show he's putting on for his ex-wife's benefit and has that scene where she's kind of flailing and not as good as the other dancers. He breaks her down and she cries at the window and he says, I can't make you a great dancer. I don't even know if I can make you a good dancer. Keep trying and don't quit. I know I can make you a better dancer. And I'd, I'd like very much to do that. Stay. Are you gonna keep yelling at me? Probably. Yeah. She comes back, has a moment where she does accomplish something and receives kind of the warmth of her fellow dancers. This one scene that both shows the truth of the creative process, warts and all, and the cruelty of the man and the necessity of the result. I mean, it's a very complicated dynamic. And one could say the necessity of the result. How about don't cast a better dancer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, uh, but I mean, you're right. It's it's so complicated because at the end of that But he's that also not sequence, just throwing her out for not being at that caliber. I suppose he's trying to say he recognized something in her that he could bring to fruition. But this is to me what's complicated because yes, there's definitely something about that. And there is something about yelling and, and his mistreatment of her, especially because he had already slept with her and there's already some weirdness in that power dynamic. Mm-hmm. But what complicates the scene is the fact that he does realize like it's not always the best way to go and it is hurting her in a way that yeah. would take away from the end result, from yes. the product. Right. His recognition of that makes it complicated. And then when she does do the choreography and he compliments her and everybody claps. Yes. And you see her, the look on her face and the joy of mm-hmm. finally getting some praise, mm-hmm. which is great and triumphant in one way. But if you also look at it, it's like, couldn't there have been another way to get to that? And everybody else is clapping. It's like, oh, you made it through the gauntlet that he put you through of his bad behavior in order to achieve some slight amount of success. Again, I'm not saying that there's nothing to it, but it's theater and art is so personal and it is so, those power dynamics are so part of it and it becomes so hard to separate all of them. One of the things that amazes me so much is that he's able to, I don't think he lets himself off the hook with that, but no. he- um, He puts the hook right under his neck and into his head. And so the fact that he's willing to convey so much and leave you at the end with a sense of her accomplishment, and yet at the same time, it's not uh, an unalloyed good. It's brilliant brilliant writing and brilliant filmmaking. Dustin Hoffman talks about that aspect of working with him as a director. And in one of the little vignettes I saw, you have Fosse talking about working with Dustin Hoffman on this scene in Lenny 
the courtroom scene in front of the judge mm-hmm. where Lenny is giving this impassioned speech and trying to explain to the judge, like, I want to be understood by you. I'm not here to just say tit and ass to piss you off. I'm trying to do something. And they kept doing this scene. And, you know, for Fosse, it wasn't enough. And he says, Dustin Hoffman finally came to him and said, you know, Bob, I, I don't think I have anything more that I'm giving you. Like, the, you're getting what I have. And Fosse says, you know, if I thought that, I would let it go. But I don't believe that. There is more. And I think you can get to it. Just keep doing it with me. And, you know, he says this process of being a director in terms of directing an actor in this moment, it can be about pushing them beyond where they think they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have that taking place between a powerful man and a woman, it's obviously a very different dynamic than between Dustin Hoffman, who's got his own problems from the era, and a male director. But the problematic nature of the relationship between Gideon and the dancer in the scene we're talking about is put into a movie by Bob Fosse writing about things he is well known to have done. It reminds me a little bit of the complexity that is in Do the Right Thing, where you're talking about some of the racial complexities in the way Spike just told the truth. And when Mm -hmm. you tell the truth, we're amazed as filmgoers because it feels so real. Instead of couching it in like, I'm going to make myself look the best like Alan Dershowitz in Reversal of Fortune. Even if it's not a question of making yourself look the best, it's also sometimes when you're writing, you might think of like, I want to convey this. Yeah. And so everything gets kind of shaped or planed down in order to get that message across. And you lose those subtleties Mm -hmm. that make it more complex. And Kubrickian in the sense of taking really this collection of scenes and there is and isn't a linear narrative at play. We do have the show kind of being put together, but we never get to see it premiere because he dies before that happens. Um, We do get to see the movie and have also an additional meta layer of commentary with the Cliff Gorman Lenny character giving us an extended riff on death and the stages of grief from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. He's actively involved in editing a film of this riff among others. Why do films that are non-linear to me sometimes feel like they have a deeper truth and mystery of life quality. I wondered the same thing myself. And I think it's because the way they talked about the editing, you're able to have resonances, have Mm -hmm. something from the past be juxtaposed with something from the present, Mm -hmm. uh, which presages something in the future. If you actually were to talk about what are the events of this film and lay them out linearly, it's like, eh, there's nothing all that... It's that eventful. It's not a plot-driven film. And so it's those resonances, the context that's created by putting them in those. That's what makes it work. Full Casting Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind. Like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. So I'm thinking about what actually does happen. Yes. What happened? No. (laughs) What actually does happen? For the listeners, as he's putting on this show, as he's editing this film, he has one heart attack. They're going to stop the production, take a four-month break. This actually becomes one of my favorite scenes of the oh, movie, so which is the announcement from the producers talking about the fact <laughs> that we're no longer going to rehearsal. You know, they're trying to put a, a good so face good. on it and say, like, we'll be back in four months. From the producers, the stagehands, the writers, everybody is there and they're frustrated <laughs> because of their own need yes. for a job. But they're also, at least a little bit, worried about their friend. This goes into, and this is where but the ex-wife 
Yeah. Is like, so I saw exactly. Joe last night and but he so says everything's fine. Well, so, perform- so performative. Because you get to see yes. what she actually <laughs> saw and it's her crying and he looks terrible yes. in bed, but she's saying, oh, he's fine and he's, he's pinching all the all nurses. The nurses. Yeah. But everybody can tell that it's kind of bullshit. Yeah. Her performative element, the fact that the That's how songwriter- I feel when I address our staff here. <laughs> And listen, a lot we of try sitting around mumbling. Underneath we try. Underneath. Well, what we need is somebody like the uh, Anthony Holland character to then start like, yeah. I'm going to do a song. We've made a decision to postpone the show for four months, but the doctors have assured us that Joe will be fine. Therefore, the show will definitely be done. I promise. Now, we're aware of the... Financial burden I gave up a TV might impose on some of you. And what a dummy. Well, we're prepared to uh, try to get you temporary jobs or we even lend you money. Jonesy, uh, Jonesy, easy on the money, easy on the money. <laughs> all right, Larry, all right, okay. We don't have a lot of cash available, but what I'd like to say to you is I, we, Think of you all as family. Bullshit. And we want to do everything we possibly can to keep you all together. I was with him last night. Already, he's much better. I just left him an hour ago. He was in a great mood, making jokes, making passes at all the nurses. And he told me to tell all of you he has a terrific idea for a new hospital number. Hold it, Audrey, hold it. Hospital number, hospital number. Just give me a minute. Stan, will you give me some room? How does the title Hospital Hop grab you? It grabs me. Great, great. I think I got it. I think he's got it. I got it. Stan, help me out, please. Clap your hands. emotions that are there and the weird yes. desperation and need to entertain each other and themselves as a way to like stave off the grief and the fear mm-hmm. both of losing this job and any actor will tell you any job is yes. most likely your last one yes and if it gets put off yeah. what are you going to do to fill that time and then also the fact that there's somebody who might die you know mm-hmm. they have some affection for it, you know so to keep all of those things at bay that's what yeah. performing that's what theater is about trying to keep the shadows away. The scene of the insurance adjuster meeting with the producers was another incredibly nuanced reality of show business scene. Once Gideon is in the hospital, producers have a meeting with their insurance adjuster who is walking them through the various options. Option one, Gideon is in the hospital for four months. You've spent $425,000 and he is able to come back, we are not liable for that expenditure. Option two is he gets out of the hospital now after a couple of weeks stay, we are also not liable. Option three is he dies, in which case you've spent 425,000, we pay you the full $1 million of the policy, meaning you would make a profit of $535,000. And they just let it hang as the producers, of course, are not crass enough to go, that's probably the best option yeah. for our investment. 
Bob Fosse, he's such an old ham. Like the bits when, they're like, when he's like. Authors advances 10,000 equity bonds, 50,000 rehearsal salaries, and we've made some advances to a few of the cast, about 43,000. We're in for about. Uh, $480,500. Yes, that's the figure I had here. And change. <laughs> All those guys are great. Jonesy, the guy who plays Jonesy, is that guy an actor? Well, it is an actor. His name is William Le Messina. He who I keep, so I kept thinking good. it was Dick Van Patten. He did look like Dick Van Patten. Uh, another thing that I loved about that scene, and this is what I was going to ask that I'm still a little bit unsure about, but this is somewhat based on real events in his life, but then it ends differently. And they're, this thing, like you said, they lay out the possibility that they'll make more money. Yes. Literally, like the if plot of the producers. And then he has his heart attack. He's in the hospital, but there's a point where he thinks he's going to recover. And they have to go to John Lithgow, uh, a great John Lithgow performance, oh. because it's literally the inverse so, of the character he plays in terms of endearment. Uh, he's so fucking good as your best friend who is completely willing to steal your job from you. Yeah, the character so he funny. plays. Da, 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 da. John Lithgow's character was based somewhat on New York theater director Michael Bennett, the director of uh, Dreamgirls, with whom Bob Fosse uh, had a okay. long-standing that rivalry. That makes a lot of sense. And I did that <laughs> just out of being in the same business. There's also the fact that yes. there are actual rivals or frenemies, to use the That's more modern parlance. Yeah, the producer has lunch, or no, he's watching John Lithgow's rehearsal for another show and telling him the whole story of how horrible it is what happened to Gideon and Lithgow's making all the appropriate tut-tuts and oh my, how unfortunate. They're both doing this dance, which is he's not going to be so crass as to come out and ask John Lithgow to take over the directing and John Lithgow isn't going to be so crass as to offer. But they eventually meet and he says, well, you know, I'd be happy to take a look at this script. And he says, oh, oh my God, you know what? I happen to have a copy of it right here. <laughs> But then the way that's punctured at the lunch that they have. Where, this, where we find out, one, that the thing he was rehearsing has flopped. And two. Uh, and how do we find out? Oh, <laughs> and the right. ultimate indignity. The ultimate indignity where a woman comes up to him and asks for his autograph and tells him. I'm an actress and next to Joe Gideon, you're my favorite director. I'm so sorry your show was a flop. Yeah. <laughs> to use the moment that you're kind of mostly in the business for, he's a Broadway theater director and he got recognized at a restaurant, right? Yes. He's so obviously thrilled by that. And then to have that moment pierce your deepest fears and insecurities, that's showbiz, folks. Yeah. Don't let anybody <laughs> tell you different that showbiz is just a series of indignities. If you can deal with that, you'll do fine. And there's so much of loving and hating show business. Yeah. Okay, talking about meta unpacking. So you have... Bob Fosse directing a semi-autobiographical film which co-stars a woman whom he had recently broken up with in Anne Reinking, playing basically herself <laughs> in the film and playing out many true as their actual relationship. Yeah. Anne Reinking to play herself. I had to audition several times. Yes, I saw that. A brief Anne Reinking moment. Can I just say, wow, what a dancer. Oh, I mean, yeah. dance people are listening is going, yeah, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I'm not a dance person. I'm not a musical person, but holy shit, could she dance? Yeah. An amazing dancer. And she was also so beautiful. Stunning. And so, like, My so God, I those eyes. I was swept up in the whole thing. And in this scene, he puts himself on the hook yet again by showing how his selfishness allowed him to justify relentless philandering and yet how his insecurity caused him to freak out when any woman that he was involved with yes. dared to do the same thing. Oh, Michael? It's uh, Katie. <laughs> so long. Did you mean it about dinner? 
Wally's at 11? You're surprised. I'm a little surprised. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Mike. Bye-bye. I'm a little surprised, too. Isn't that nice? Now we're all a little surprised. Who was that? Michael Graham. Who was Michael Graham? He's a dancer in my ballet class. Straight or gay? What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, is he looking to get laid, or is he looking for Mr. Wright? He's straight. Michael Graham is a very tall name. Scheider, man. I can't believe he didn't win an Academy Award for this. It's ridiculous. I mean, at least he was nominated. Was he? I'm going to read you the nominees this year, and it's perhaps understandable. Actor in a leading role, Dustin Hoffman for Kramer vs. Kramer, Jack Lemmon for The China Syndrome, Al Pacino and Justice for All, Peter Sellers for being there, Roy Scheider for All That Jazz. And the winner was? Peter Sellers? Dustin Hoffman, Kramer versus Kramer for... Oh, sorry. White people got divorced. Tragic, tragic, mama nini, whatever it is. Tragic mama nini. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what it was. I don't know. Isn't it like sad kids torn apart by divorce? Probably as a child of two divorces, I don't ever want to see that right. movie. <laughs> Any year where you're up against Dustin Hoffman, Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, and Peter Sellers as an actor, and you lose? Okay. I mean, Absolutely. I can't say Look, you can well, feel terrible. I love Roy Scheider, and, uh, but I think he would probably also be like, wow, that's that's... Like, I am amongst the greats yes. in a way that I think he is not he often is. thought of. He is oh, I, that yes, great. I think he is a lot better than people give him credit for. Yeah. And I'm always, everything that we have seen him in, both in the podcast and mm -hmm. in general, I'm always like, why do I not think of him in the same way that I would think of, let's say, uh, you Because know. he didn't live long enough to have the victory lap that in America we, we tend to wait for before we admit the greatness of someone who we just kind of took for granted because he's just reliably good yeah. at kind of everything. And also- Roy, you know, was a working actor and did, yes. did a lot of stuff. Let's put it charitably. I yeah. mean, he was in 2010. With John Lithgow. You know, uh, he, took, he took a job, right? Yeah. He took jobs when they were offered. He had more of a Michael Caine approach to the business, I right. would say. And I do think if he'd lived another 10 years into his 80s, like a Gene Hackman, like a Jack Nicholson, and then kind of went away a little bit, but was still around, we would all go, holy shit, Roy Scheider, what a career. Well, his last credit is something called Iron Cross in 2009. Mm. Joseph, that has something to do with the Nazis. A retired New York police officer, played by the late Roy Scheider, so I guess he died before he came out, travels to Nuremberg to visit his son Ronnie years after turning his back on him for rejecting a promising career in the NYPD and marrying a local artist. Da -da -da. Now the aging SS commander who murdered his entire family in a Polish forest during World War II. Yep, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a scene that brought me to tears. There are father-daughter moments played with heartbreaking specificity throughout all that jazz as the father of a daughter who's not much younger than the character played by Elizabeth Foldy does a great job. Her only film role. Communicating that heartbreaking disappointment in her father's lack of attention, yet even more heartbreaking, her forgiveness of that. We've seen many scenes in a movie where the dad is breaking his promise or, oh, I forgot I was taking you. I'm so sorry, sweetie. I've got to work. But what's so genius about this movie is that so many of the scenes where he's doing that to his daughter, she loves him so much that she forgives him. That's the heartbreak that he is able to communicate. And of course, the same thing is true of all the women in his life. His ex-wife exactly, yes. does that. His girlfriend, played by Anne Reinking, does that. He's forgiven so much. It's so weird that for such a 
important figure, I really have to be reminded what Bob Fosse actually looked like in a weird way. I was surprised. Isn't that weird? When my, no. Why isn't his image more a thing that we're aware of? Because he was not as famous as a dancer as, yeah. he, as he was as a choreographer and director. Uh, I mean, that's all. Yeah. I was watching some clips and seeing him. First of all, he really was good, but yeah. he was also talking about it's like a lot of his signature sure. moves came from his physical imperfections. His limitations. His limitations. And that scene he, like, that we just watched. Move, he was saying like, I couldn't do the ballet turnout. Yeah. So I kept having people turn their things in. Right. I have a bit of a slouch, so I would overemphasize it in the moves, you know, to yes. take advantage of it. I started losing my hair real quick. Yeah. So uh, everybody's wearing hats. hats. Hat work. I also saw a thing where a choreographer was saying that he famously had tight hips. And so that informed a lot of these signature moves as well. But anyway, to go back to this scene, man, I don't know, this reduced me to tears. And it's such a joyful scene. It's not played for pathos, yet I was so moved by it, which is when Anne Ryan King and Elizabeth Foldy put on a performance for Joe Gideon in his apartment to Everything Old is New Again. There's a little bit of there. It's You're just going to hear a song and some conversation, yeah. but... But it's good. It's good. I was just weeping watching it last night. It's so moving. I read an anecdote from Scheider that said he kind of regretted that Fosse had them do this in a rehearsal moment, and he himself was reduced to tears mm -hmm. because at that point in the process, he sort of knew what the subtext was here. These two people who love him, one of whom is his daughter and the other whom is his current girlfriend, who are putting on a show that features his movements, the hands, the hats, that point at the end where she says, pretty pictures, because that's the Fosse thing is like, if you took a picture of it, it's a yeah. pretty picture of a dance move held. Scheider says they performed this and he was just weeping and he felt kind of bad because Fosse kept saying, do you want to see more of it? And he said, no, 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 don't ever show me anything again. I just, I want to try to get back to how I felt when you first yes. played that for me. His reactions are good in that scene, but knowing that, I think when you watch it again, you can see he's already had the emotional experience yeah. in a way. So it's a, one of those things where, as a director, had Fosse held that off, I think we would have really seen Scheider fall apart in yeah. a great way. Then he would have gotten the friggin' Academy Award. Yes! That's what was missing. I bet Dustin Hoffman cried. Fosse did it on purpose. He didn't want, <laughs> he didn't want Scheider to go up there? Yeah, he's like, this is my movie. <laughs> I don't want you getting the credit. I don't know why that scene is so good. Because it's... Everything is old is new again. The fact that the daughter and girlfriend are there doing his moves, everything is commenting on everything else mm -hmm. and is repeated. It's insightful and a little creepy that he recognizes that there's something he controls yes. his dance moves. These two women, they 
lovingly are yeah. celebrating it with him, and yet there is a discomfort because they're also doing it to make him feel better because he, he had a feels flop. sad because, because he had a flop and because yeah. he's sick. This is what they're doing to make him feel better. And so much of this film is repurposing one thing for another, repurposing his actual life mm-hmm. for the subject of the movie, yeah. repurposing his old relationship with, mm-hmm. uh, with Leland Palmer. Well, with Leland Palmer, oh, with Leland Palmer for yeah. the new yeah. musical. Everything is about repetition and the fact that it's showtime, folks. You can't break out of these cycles because mm-hmm. this is who he is, which is, I think, what makes this such a great character study on top of everything else that it has to say about death and show business and being a performer, there's also the thing of being helpless in the face of your own character. And I wonder too if it has power because it's a unforced moment, which of course they worked it out in the context of the movie, the girlfriend and the daughter worked out the routine for Joe. But you could imagine in his work then it becomes something that you try to capture something of that real moment in your work on stage, which you can of course never really do. It's like chasing the high the first time you get high and then it's like it's never as good again. In the same way, I think this scene has such pure fun and whimsy, and yet when you try to do that on stage or make other people do it on stage as you have it in your head in the highly specific manner, you become the monster. That scene is just so incredible for me. Ben Vereen is brilliant as the character. O'Connor Flood. O'Connor Flood. I think he's doing a Sammy Davis Jr. take here Mm -hmm. because there's one scene where he has the star of David Necklace. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't know and, that. And Sammy Davis had been in Sweet Charity. And so I think Fosse is kind of taking a little bit of that character as well. Anyway, this is a little bit of the Ben Vereen character and the hospital sequence. Oh, no, no. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. The word superstar is greatly overused in this business. Mm. But for my next guest, the word superstar is totally inadequate. Whenever I do a benefit, and I've done 150, 60, 70 this year, all for very worthy causes, I can always count on this dude to be right there with me. I feel humble in his presence. From deep, deep in here, ladies and gentlemen, let me lay on you. A great entertainer. A great entertainer. A great humanitarian. A great humanitarian. And my dear friend for 25 years. My dearest, dearest friend for 20 years. (laughs) You missed my five years. Oh, boy, do I hate show business. Joe, you love show business. That's right, I love show business. I'll go either way. Is that as succinct a Bob Fosse statement as there is? CCH Pounder as the neglectful nurse. Her first, uh, is that her, her first, first movie role? Yep. I thought that was such an interesting turn because after all this, his death is sort of hinged upon a neglectful moment because he's been so full of shit for so long yeah. and she doesn't really take him seriously. And it's his ex-wife who's kind of like, come on, we, he's had another heart attack. And the nurse character doesn't believe that. Yeah. And so as a result, he goes into the body bag after the insane musical number at the end. We didn't talk too much about the scenes with him and Jessica Lang with the angel of death. For me, the weakest part of the film. I find the other stuff so real. Even the staged musical numbers at the end, I find so real, even though they're hallucinatory right. and otherworldly. Uh, they don't really work for me, although I understand why they're there. They, I, work I, I, they worked in the context of everything else. Yeah. Like the very fact that it did not just jump back and forth in time, but also jumped into this other space. And the fact that they came together after the musical number as he is being wheeled down, mm-hmm. it looks yes. like a gangplank toward her. I thought it was just a beautiful shot. And also it was a very fossy aesthetic in yeah. that it was kind of grimy looking, yeah. a little dark, and you could see where things were hung and stuff yeah. 
yes. that. And I thought as a culmination, I did like having just that third plane of existence where he is, he's honest, be a little bit more honest. I guess the juxtaposition broadly is you have this blonde, ethereal, gauzy goddess who's actually the angel of death. Right. And then you have this colorful, dancing, singing, manic, energetic presence in the Ben Vereen character. And he's kind of Satan. Mm -hmm. So it's a flipped imagery or something. I actually thought about her in contrast to the other women, the contrast with the theater people who are all so earthy and Mm -hmm. like sweaty and you see it rehearsing and they're all smoking and making dirty jokes and stuff like that. And that contrast worked. And to me, it it just captured him. And the fact that it was so filmic and theatrical it was. as well, which is one of the things that I just love about this movie and about his aesthetic in general. Well, to that point, Alan Heim, the editor, had a good quote. I think it's from the same article you're quoting before. He said, people in this business are always afraid to leave the audience behind. One of the things I liked about working with Fosse was that he believed the more you can tell a story without using words, the better off you are. I always felt when I was working on a Fosse movie that even though there were always a lot of words, in a sense, it was like making a silent movie. The pictures were everything. And it is true that whatever is going on, you could take a picture of the screen and it will tell you what the dialogue and or singing and dancing is meant to do. And it's so funny because that's what a musical number is. We've reached a moment in the story where what we're about to express can only be expressed through song and or dance. Somebody said when you can't talk anymore and you have to sing (laughs) and a dance number happens when uh, you can't sing anymore, you have to dance. It's heightening the way you're expressing something. Fosse wanted to be Fred Astaire as a young man, right? And he wished that he had what Fred Astaire had, which almost no one has ever had since, which is not only the phenomenal dancing ability, but he could also sing and he could also act. Quote in one of the Fosse documentaries that says, the thing with Fred Astaire is he makes it all look so easy to go from a dialogue scene to suddenly breaking into song to suddenly breaking into dance. And if you remember in our Grease episode, the director, Randall Kleisner, talked a lot about how hard it actually is to do that in a movie. We take it for granted that these segues, they just happen, but he's like, it's actually really hard to do to have a cutting of a dialogue scene, and then all of a sudden someone's going to break into song. How do you smooth that transition for the audience? And Fred Astaire could just do that himself. Yeah. So they didn't have to do complicated setups to get there, but Fosse himself was not enough of an actor or a singer to be able to do that. So he went all in on, I'm going to create the language of modern dance. I don't know if Fred Astaire was a director himself, but certainly a choreographer and as a big star, all of his dances would be filmed very wide. And Fosse introduced this highly edited, quick, different angles, more close-ups of the moves to Mm -hmm. show it, as opposed to just sitting back and watching it play out in front of you, which was probably like that. He was never going to be able to do it the same way that Fred Astaire Mm -hmm. could, so you invent a new vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask what your thought about this was. So he does seem like he's going to live at some point, Mm -hmm. and then he does die. And I wonder if he is conscious of that million dollar payout for the producers? No. <laughs> what, like it's good for everybody if I die? Sort of. No. I mean, he's obviously no, he got so much live. like self-loathing and he stuff. He wants and I don't know, to he live. Does, I don't know if he embraces death and he, I don't know if he wants to live. At some point he realized like, I hate myself so much. Maybe I should just let go. No, he says she goes in for death's kiss, Angelique. And he says, no, not now, please, not now. I've got so That's much true. to do. And she yeah. backs off. But he has one last show. And then goes out. Well, I think the way it's played is they watch the hilariously filmed review of his film, 
in the great deadpan review that they use, the reviewer singles out the Cliff Gorman character as really elevating the material above here. But unfortunately, Joe Gideon is not able to <laughs> wrangle it up in service of anything. So it does give you that kind of moment of like, shit. Uh, and then he dies. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, of in the end, I felt like perhaps there's no other way it could end. The very final musical number for me did finally go over the top yeah. of where we were. Um, what's the song they're singing with Ben Vereen? Uh, bye Bye Life. Oh, yeah, Bye Bye Life. Yeah, I didn't get that. It's a little, little, <laughs> little, little too subtle for me. By that point, we've had about four or five brilliant musical numbers, some of which involve his daughter, his wife, his girlfriend, and they're so well done, filmed on the soundstage with Joe Gideon directing himself, himself in, the in the hospital and then being irritated that he's not performing his lines. But then the final scene is where he's performing in front of a theater of everyone we've come to know. The producers. The burlesque, the burlesque dancers, dancers from the kids. The, the stand-up <laughs> comedian. Mother, from, yeah, all, everybody Everybody's seen. there. My God, the shot of him being zipped up in a body bag. And the fact that it cuts off the music that's playing just it, before it. Uh, and again, it's such a simple idea, but it is so right to cut the sound out that abruptly so with the zipping of the body bag. And the pulse tones from a film set for getting yep. up to speed uh, on audio. They're using the beep, beep, beep of the audio. Then that also counters the heart monitor that yep. he's on. And then after he zips up, they go right into this. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. This was an interesting tidbit. Bob Fosse is the only person ever to win an Oscar and Emmy and a Tony Award in the same year. Yeah. <laughs> 1973. So he must have won the Oscar for Cabaret. He won the Emmy for Liza with a Z. It was a TV special. Yeah. And I don't know what he won the Tony Award for. Well, again, if it would have been that same year. Oh, he won for Pippin. Ah. So in 1973, he won Best Director of a Musical and Best Choreography of a Musical. And his Tony wins stretch back to 1955. So right, he, because he was choreographing on stage before yeah. getting into So he won a Tony in 1955, and he won his last one in 1986. So he didn't get the EGOT, as they call it. What's the one that he's missing? Is it the Grammy? He's missing the Grammy. Yeah, that's the least of them. <laughs> Really? He's yeah, got I the guess toe. so. Tony, Oscar, and Emmy. The toe. That doesn't quite have the same. <laughs> uh, listeners, you know, <laughs> let's try to uh, hashtag toe. So if you haven't seen all that jazz recently, really make a point to check it out. If you've watched Fosse Verdon, I don't know what your opinions will be, but I think this in such an interesting way is the most definitive celebration of and takedown of yes. Bob Fosse. Done by Fosse Done himself. Done by Bob Fosse it's kind of, It's an amazing kind of insight. Interesting Cliff Gorman anecdote. When I first moved to New York, my first job was at CBS Television, which was on West 57th Street. And there were taverns and bars there where you would go after work and Andy Rooney would be there or Mike Wallace or other CBS personas. And one bar was called Armstrong's. And we used to have funny interactions with like these Broadway actors who would hang around at this bar. And I was watching this entire movie and I was watching those entire segments. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Yeah. This guy is brilliant. What an actor. Looks for Familiar. He's kind of that guy. Didn't even realize it was Cliff Gorman until I Googled it. And I remembered that we had one night at the bar where my friend Peter Johansson and I were totally talking to Cliff Gorman, who was hanging out. 
And he was sitting at the corner of the bar and up over his shoulder was a photo of himself in Lenny. It was a picture of him over his shoulder playing Lenny Bruce in his Tony Award winning Lenny Bruce performance. So he played Lenny Bruce Tony Award winning performance. Then Bob Fosse is going to do the film and you don't get the part yeah. because you're not Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Showbiz, man. Tell you what, though, he got a consolation prize. Which was? This. Oh, this. Getting yeah. to play. Sure. I thought, you meant meeting, sort of I thought you meant meeting me at Armstrong's. Oh, no, that's its own prize. That is not a <laughs> consolation for anything. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Do you want to go to alternative casting? Yes. Put that one back. Uh, Warren Beatty did not want to die at the end of the movie. <laughs> so typical, Warren. I, <laughs> I mean, I love the Get man. Get over yourself. That's a pretty lame reason. And I mean, well, I don't know that he would have been. you think that's what it was? This is what I read, yeah. Columbia Pictures wanted Warren Beatty. He was interested, provided he didn't die at the end. It's like, well, I think that that's an impasse. I don't die. I don't die. I, mean, I got an image to I remember protect. that anecdote from some other. That would have been a problem for Heaven Can Wait, too. That would have been. They were like, yeah, Warren, uh, you don't die at the end. You die at the beginning. <laughs> it's, oh, that's the okay. Loophole, right? like, that's how you convince an actor to do yeah. something. I also saw that Dreyfus was originally cast. I think we talked about that on Jaws as well, because he has a similar thing. They might have even started, maybe it was pre-production before they went to filming, but he didn't have confidence in Fosse as a director or in the process and dropped out and later said, like, yes, I was a fool. My mistake. Well, he had just won an Academy Award for The Goodbye Girl. Interestingly enough, it's so funny because so, Scheider had this same interesting moment in how he got his other iconic film yeah. performance in Jaws was similarly through a bit of kismet Rick, as he calls Richard Dreyfus, says, Rick was a friend of mine, came by apartment in New York to visit the family. And he said to me, you know, I don't think I want to do this movie. I asked him why. And he said, I just don't like Fosse and he doesn't like me. And I just don't feel mentally prepared to do this. And I said to him, Rick, you better tell him because you've been in rehearsal for a week. So he did tell him and then he left. So then Scheider's agent, who was also Fosse's agent, called him up and said, would I like to read the script? So he read it. He went to a meeting with Fosse and he went down to Fosse's office and told him all the silly, wild, crazy, dopey, ridiculous parts he'd ever played in summer stock theater. You actors always do this, right? Like you're up for a part and you want us to hear all about your regional theater credits. Depending on the part. <laughs> he was like, I'm not just a movie guy. I've done plays. You want a showman? I'm a showman. I mean, even though he doesn't sing great. Fosse says, I'll tell you what, if you're willing to come to my apartment every night and read the script with me, I'll consider you for the part. By the end of the week, he said, you're the guy. And then Fosse had to go to bat for Scheider with the studio because everybody said it was artistic suicide. Quote, Roy Scheider, the guy from the French Connection? <laughs> you gotta be kidding. But Fosse stuck with me and said, this is the guy. That's great. Uh, another one considered Jack Lemon, but it was decided that he was too old for the role. Yes. Alan Alda, Robert Blake, Elliot Gould, Gene Hackman, Jack Nicholson, <laughs> and George Siegel were considered. And again, but again this is like, considered. this is just everybody who's anybody at but the moment gets every to, script. Yeah, it is fun to think of that, you know. <laughs> I don't know that I think any of those would have worked. Alan Alda, no. Robert Blake, I don't know well enough. Robert Blake. John Voight read for the role of Joe Gideon, but Bob Fosse had already recommended Roy Scheider, so I think yeah. we dodged a bullet there. It's just so funny. Roy Scheider, I mean, here's at least two instances where he ends up turning in an iconic movie performance in a film he wasn't even slated to, yes. be, to, be, to be in when the film's production had started, and both involve Richard Dreyfuss. <laughs> you know who else was considered was uh, Bob Fosse. 
to play Considered himself. playing the lead role himself. <laughs> Producer David H. Melnick pointed out that Fosse, who had a history of heart problems, wouldn't survive the shoot. <laughs> oh. Oh, look, look who put us on a timer. Uh, well, you know, I do have to do an interview in oh, 10 minutes. Oh, you do? Okay, so should we just move really quickly to Latchkey TV? Yes. Okay. Hello? This week, I'm doing a different Latchkey TV approach. I'm going only through the feature ads. Oh, great. And I want to start, Chris, with the Sears Capturing the Magic of Christmas 21-piece portrait package. Did you ever get your kid photos taken out of Sears? Never. This is like a rite of passage for someone from the 70s and the 80s, where your mom would get you dressed up in some ridiculous outfit like this. You would go sit on like a piece of wood with a carpet tacked yeah. onto it and get a 10 by 13 wall portrait, two 8 by 10s, three 5 by 7s, and 15 wallet yeah. size photos for your mother to have for We did that at school. This is before school photos. Okay. Yeah, this school is in the 80s. Put these you, need, out of business. you need professional photographic equipment. To Got it. Uh, then I love this Mission Impossible ad, A, because I loved Mission Impossible uh -huh. as a child. Also, because since Airplane must have already been out, they inadvertently use an Airplane joke to try and tease <laughs> a supposedly serious episode of Mission Impossible. Surely you don't want to miss Mission Impossible, but don't call me Shirley. It says, your mission, Jim, is to rescue an innocent man from execution in a Turkish prison. One more thing, Jim. He's an old friend from the IMF team. Then, Vanna White in her first television movie, a 3,000-year-old goddess comes to life to learn the true meaning of love, Chris. Vanna is Venus in The Goddess of Love, a it's romantic fantasy comedy. Also starring David Leisure, Joe Azuzu, if you remember him from the oh, Azuzu yeah, that, <laughs> I didn't know David he Naughton from An American Werewolf in uh -huh. Paris, London. He might have appeared in the John Rhys Davies. You know him? Uh, yeah, of course. And Little Richard. <laughs> uh, no. I don't know that Vanna White or Little Richard did other acting performances after Then, that. just flipping the page, we have another. This must have been, this is 88, so a lot of like romantic, twisted things. Here's a woman licking a large diamond. Oh, yeah. It's called The Diamond Trapped. The irresistible combination of fire and ice. World premiere starring Brooke Shields and Howard Hessman. <laughs> I also, bet they'd get along great. Ed Marinaro from Hill Street Blues and Twiggy. I'm shipping this Brooke is, Shields and Howard Hessman. I also thought this was funny. Uh, Geraldo, he gets answers. As a reporter, he brought home the news from 60 countries and 12 wars. Geraldo asks the questions you'd like the answers to. You don't know my life. You don't know what questions I want the answers to. Definitely more than just talk. Also, uh, shout out. This is sort of a combo headline because an interesting crossover yes. just today. So, uh, Michael, what's his name, Wright? Max Wright. Max Wright, who played the, I guess the producer on the comedy movie, on yes, the stand-up comedy the film movie. within the film. The film within this the film and all that jazz. Great turn. Was really glad to see his very distinctive voice. Yes. And sort of hemming and hawing. Probably best known for playing the dad on ALF. Yes. And this special episode of ALF says, Kate's having a baby. Alf's having a kitten. Oh, I was having, right. I don't know what that means. He's I think he's kitten? also pregnant. Oh. But with kittens. Was he, uh, No, he ate term? cats. Alf ate cats. Oh, he did? Yeah. That was, like, I think, part of the in joke. In the neighborhood? Um, I think, wait, on Alf's, you know, spoiler for Alf. Yeah, on his home planet, I think they would eat something like cats. Something like cats or cats? I guess, I don't know. I, I've never been. But that was Alf's thing. Like, that would be the joke. He'd keep wanting to eat cats. Oh, I didn't know. I've never and then I think also, is that a, isn't that a phrase like, like when you're worried about it, it's like, oh, I'm having kittens. Uh, I guess so. She's having kittens? Yeah. Hmm. 
I don't know. Well, what I do know about how language does MacGyver's change? hair in the season premiere God, was fantastic. Damn, Richard Dean good. Anderson? Yeah. MacGyver faces a trap even he can't get out of his own dark past. Oh, so very much like all that jazz. Tonight on MacGyver. <laughs> Doing that for super listener R.F. Brown, who used to just do that all the time in college. Tonight on MacGyver. <laughs> or maybe that was AJ used to do that. Somebody did who that. Who cares? Who cares? You're both um, great guys. This is another one. A Melissa Gilbert TV movie, parental discretion advised, Chris. Killer instinct. As a woman, she fears him. As a doctor, she's determined to save him. Can she survive a patient with a killer instinct? Also starring Woody Harrelson from Cheers. Ooh, so that's sort of like a dry run for natural born killers. I guess so. Then, since it's 88, we're going to go spies, lies, and naked thighs. All right. Only three things can save the president's life. That would be the aforementioned (laughs) spies, lies, and naked thighs starring Ed Begley Jr., Linda Pearl, and Harry Anderson. So one of them is the spy, the other is a liar, and I bet it's Harry Anderson is the naked naked thighs. thighs. Yeah. Uh, then, and this is from the main edition of TV Guide, randomly there's a ad for a Hawaiian calendar. Beautiful, colorful, scenic pictures, authentic. Why that's in TV Guide, I don't know. Because I guess if you're in Maine, you're like, oh. Oh, yeah, you haven't seen here. the sun. Yeah. yeah. Little shout out to Incredible Hulk, starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. His pent-up anger has been seething for six long years. In other words, it was canceled six years ago. We've now gone through the cycle where everything old is is new again. It's a TV movie. The Incredible Hulk returns. Then, weirdly, everything was like TV versions of movies. So we have Beauty and the Beast, the series. Yes. War of the Worlds, the series. And Friday the 13th, the series. None of which I'd ever heard of before. Oh, I've heard of all of those. The TV series versions? Huh. You never heard of Beauty and the Beast? That made Ron Perlman. Yeah, but that doesn't look like Ron Perlman there. I mean, I've Actually heard, does. I wonder if this is an earlier Beauty and the Beast. No, 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 that's definitely him under, under that's, that's him? not, I mean, under makeup. Who's underneath? Nolte? <laughs> then, I mean, this somebody should bring this back. Circus of the Stars, 13th oh, Annual, yeah. Death-Defying Acts, Astounding Feats, and much more. Ringmaster, B. Arthur and Martin Mull. <laughs> so you're in good hands. Yeah, that's another one I'm shipping. And here's our circus contributors. Louis Anderson, John Biner, Mary Hart, Harvey Corman. Tom Poston from the New Heart Show. Okay. Uh-huh. Kathy Rigby, famed gymnast? Uh wasn't that Peter Pan? But yeah, she was a gymnast, she, wasn't she? I guess, maybe. I mean, Kathy isn't she Peter Pan because she was a gymnast? I thought she was just short enough to Yeah, gymnasts are short. So Kathy she could have been Rigby. a jockey though. Jockeys. Why do you think she did tampon commercials? Uh, who are we talking about again? Kathy Rigby. Yeah. Former Kathy artistic Rigby. gymnast. Her performance in the 1968 Summer Olympics helped popularize the sport. Well, you got it. But why am I thinking tampons? Let's go down that. I'm sure my, my interview can wait. I bet you I'm going to be right. Kathy Rigby, tampons. Yeah. Oh, maxi pads. Stay free maxi pads. That's Close what enough. it was. Close enough. Ballpark. My last one, Chris, I know you yes. have to go. This is a brilliant ad for Burlington Sheer Indulgence Pantyhose, which features an attractive young woman with a bag of groceries spilled at her feet in her living room. And it has a quote from her. Quote, I went looking for peaches and came back with a pear. This time of year, and he wanted his favorite peach dessert, right? So off to the market I went. But instead of something mundane, I found something fabulous. Burlington Sheer Indulgence. These new, shapely, very silky pantyhose right there. And so affordable, I couldn't wait to put them on. And they felt so delicious. To heck with dessert. 
I made reservations. That's like that's long. That's look, a lot of copy. It's also like it's like a foot fetish thing because like the toe is like grabbing the package of pantyhose. Yeah. And then oh, there's yeah. a blooming orchid, which is obviously a vaginal symbol. Uh, yes, and obviously. And then there's a peach, which is obviously referencing, like, peaches now in emojis are used to indicate butts. Butts, yes. So this was, like, really, this is sort of, like, the this meme of its time. very sexual, yeah. Very sexual. So to heck with dessert. She's not cooking dinner, Chris. She made reservations. Yeah. Oh, that's much more romantic. Also, final shout out, now cigarettes from the 80s. Remember those, like, tried to make cigarettes, like, mechanical and 80s-like? Like, were they robot cigarettes? Or? No, they're like in a silvery box. Oh, just and they're sort of like now, like not that old fashioned just cigarette. The brand. Got not it, got like it. Camel. These are now. I thought they were like jewels before. No, know, it's like push before, button computer yeah. now. Back now when you just, could that's advertise a cigarettes. So anyway, that's Latchkey TV, and that's our episode for today. Chris, what do you got to take us out? Well, until next week, as we close the book on this very personal look at the Omega. Remember, it's always been preceded and followed too by the Alpha. <laughs> Still there, isn't it? Go ahead. Take Baby? Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.